We are in the second division of Revelation. This is the seven seals. This is chapters 4, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 5. In this division, John is taken up into heaven in the same way that Ezekiel was and Daniel was and Paul and many other people. This is not a unique event in biblical history where he has given visions of things that are to come. Just as Jesus revealed himself on earth to John to reveal the mystery of Yahweh's plan of salvation for humans, which we saw in chapter 1 of Revelation, he now reveals the mysteries of Yahweh's plan to judge and redeem the creation, which will allow him to bring the kingdom of Yahweh to earth. First, Revelation will establish the absolute sovereignty of Yahweh and Jesus over creation as the one who created creation, redeemed creation, and are enthroned over creation. This then establishes the basis for why Yahweh and Jesus have the right to judge creation. The division closes with Yahweh and Jesus sealing and then preserving the believers from this divine wrath. This is the foundation for the purpose of the book and everything that is threat to or promise and the letters to the seven churches comes to pass here. Revelation from this point on is apocalyptic literature filled with metaphors and symbolisms. By definition, symbols point to a reality that is greater than themselves. They are pictures usually incorporating a material element or object and are used to represent and evoke a spiritual reality, like the wedding ring represents eternal covenant. The heart represents love. You cannot draw tight boundaries around the pictures. It is like poetry in that it overlaps with prophecy and wisdom literature. One should not read the text and try to tie down John's symbolism and an attempt to domesticate it to something simplistic and easily identifiable. Numbers in Apocalypse are always symbolic. This section, basically what we're going to see in chapter 4, you're going to see Yahweh enthroned. In chapter 5, you're going to see Christ enthroned, Jesus. Then in chapter 6, you're going to see the seals being broken and unleashed, but it's only going to be the first six seals. At that, it will pause for chapter 7, where you will see the believers being sealed and protected not from horrible things happening to them in the world. We can turn on the news and see horrible things happen to Christians all the time. But rather that they will be protected from God's specific judgment on the world. And they will be protected. As um, Genesis chapter 18 with Sodom and Gomorrah teaches us, God does not believe in collateral damage. Then the unpaused button will be hit and we will go back into the seals with the seventh seal. And that will wrap up in chapter 8, verse 5. And so that is this division. This division is then broken into two major sections. In this section, chapters 4 through 5, Yahweh and Jesus enthroned in heaven, are one vision. These two chapters are one vision. Even though we're going to see Yahweh enthroned and then Jesus, it is one vision. And John uses a lot of metaphors to describe Yahweh and Jesus on the throne in their glory and power. Yet his description could never fully and accurately create a true image of what he is seeing. This is very important. There is no words, there is no photograph that can accurately portray the absolute wonder of who Yahweh is and all of his power. In the same way that Ezekiel, seeing God on the throne in chapter 1 of Ezekiel, said, this is the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. It was not God, it was his glory, but it wasn't his glory, it was his appearance. It wasn't his appearance, it was a likeness. There's, there's just no descriptions 
There are no words, there are no pictures that can describe God. And so John mixes a lot of metaphors in order to explain what he is seeing. But in reading these chapters, the reader is not meant to draw pictures, for there is no picture that can do Yahweh justice. Apocalyptic literature and its metaphors are meant to communicate ideas about how, who Yahweh and Jesus are, not for one to see a physical sense of who they are. The language is peculiar because it is evocative. It calls to mind images but leaves you with nothing you can draw. This is important so that we do not try to domesticate Yahweh as we could control him. This is important. The images that are being portrayed are just enough to give you a glimpse of the character or an idea that God is trying to paint of himself and these visions. Yet they're elusive enough and vague enough, like smoke trying to grab onto it, that it leaves you with really no concrete image that you can then an image, put it on your wall and be tempted to bow down and worship it. Because here's the thing about images with God. One, they're never complete. And so the minute you have an image and say, here's what God really is, you've automatically reduced him to an idol, some simplistic thing that doesn't fully encapsulate him. And as you look at the image, you're always going to be impressed with just that aspect of him, that limited picture. The reason that God said no graven images of him is because any image we create would always be um, finite, limited, uh, one-faceted. And then when images are powerful, and then they overtake the words and the relationship we have with God. Hey, how many of you guys have ever read a book and then watched the movie? <laughs> and then watched the movie. How many of you have ever gone back and watched the movie after reading a book? I did this with Lord of the Rings. There's many other movies and stuff, but the one that really clearly sticks out is I read Lord of the Rings all the way through back in college. And then the movies came out. And the movies were phenomenal. Okay, absolutely phenomenal. And then I decided to go back and reread some of the books just out of curiosity because there was a lot that I forgot and some things I thought were missing, wasn't sure. When I read it for the first time, my imagination created these worlds, the faces of Gandalf, the faces of Frodo and Samwise Jr., um, um, all these pictures and images. When I went back to read it, all I could have, the only image I had was Elijah Wood as Frodo. <laughs> the only image I had was Ian McLean as Gandalf. The, the, the images in those movies were so powerful, because images are, that they overwrote my imagination. Not completely. But I had to be very intentional and very committed to allowing my imagination come back. And it was difficult. And that's the power of images. And so no matter how much you read the text, no matter how much you relate to God on an emotional level and engage the text on, in a word level, the image that you have portrayed on your wall that you stare at every single day of something that you create to represent God will always override whatever is on the text. Images are powerful, absolutely powerful. And so then they limp, what they do is they limit God, and all of a sudden God becomes less than what he really is. He becomes box than what he really is. The other thing is that we're tempted to bow down and worship this. Um, if this is an image of God, then it becomes so impressed, you might, you might want to pray before to help you visualize and that kind of stuff. And then it starts becoming an idol. But this idol is limited. It's finite. And the other thing is when you create images too, you own them. The createe, the creation, becomes the creator over the creator, so to speak. Like if you did a piece of artwork or music and I just came and slashed it up, 
you be horrified, offended, rightfully so. It's yours. You've invested your emotions, your, your energy, your being into it, and it becomes something that you own. And when you create images of God, then subconsciously, on an emotional level, you begin to have ownership of God in some kind of way. And everybody will be different somewhere on the spectrum, some more so to the extreme than others. But God knows us so well. And you might like to say, not me, but God said, yes, you. That's why I made a commandment in the Ten Commandments. These images are meant to evoke, but don't make them as the, the end all for who God is and what is being portrayed. This is not what he looks like. This is an idea of who he is, and it's one facet of who he is that must be put into all the other facets of all the other 65 books of the Bible and the relationship encounters that we have with him in our own personal life. And that's very important to understand. It is kind of like the mystery of electricity, Yahweh. We can see electricity in a way when it sparks, and we see what it produces. But we do not have any idea what electricity is. And if we try to explain electricity in pictures of televisions to someone in the ancient world, we might talk about how electricity is like lightning. We might talk about um, what, what makes it go. The television is like a mental image in your mind. But we would have no way to truly explain this strange reality to them with the words that we have. And there would always be aspects we would be leaving out, like protons and electrons of electricity and the conductors and resistors used to harness electricity to make things like televisions work. So it is with John and how he will describe the visions he is seeing. He is seeing something that he does not understand, something that he can't grasp or put into words. Yet God says, write this down. And so he does his best with the limited vocabulary of a human language to communicate something that he doesn't understand. So the words that we're seeing here are absolutely failing to do justice to who God is. And so take them for what they are, to communicate an idea, to draw us a little bit closer to God, and then let it go for what it is. It is not who God is in his entirety. There is so much more to him. This section is also filled with several songs that are used to recapitulate and reflect on the scenes that immediately precede them. God is going to be described, things are going to happen, and then people are going to break out in song to recapitulate it, to reinforce it on an emotional level. You're going to get the emotions of the image, and then you're going to get the emotion of music. And together, the idea will be imprinted upon you. They will also be the commentary for the correct way to understand these images. So at each stage of the apocalypse, including this one, we learn something fresh about Jesus himself. He is the exalted son of man who is also involved in the life of local churches. He is the lion and also the sacrificial lamb. So each time we get another vision of God, God is going to layer or spiral new aspects. You're going to come back around and see it deeper from a different angle or catch it a second time. Or he's going to add a new layer of the onion on to like transparencies being added and those like body books where it's the muscles and the skeleton and nerves. And each passing by in the vision will lay another layer of who this God is and how we are to see him. These two chapters, four through five, are two of the four most important chapters in all Revelation. And we can debate, and we can take views, and we can draw lines on all of our views and interpretations of the plagues. But without 4 and 5, and then later 21 and 22, all that is absolutely meaningless. Revelation literally is completely gutted out and absolutely meaningless 
if we allow ourselves to be obsessed and carried away by the plagues and the judgments and, um, and what we think they mean or when they're going to happen and completely miss 4 and 5 and 21 and 22. And I really, truly mean that. I, I think there's literally no purpose to this book whatsoever if you've got 4 and 5 and 21 and 22 out of it. And often, too often, we focus so much on the wow, the destruction, the judgments, and argue about what they mean or when they're coming, and we miss who Yahweh is on the throne. And so this is, in my opinion, the most important. Um, well, it is the most important, but in my opinion, the most exciting. Chapter 4. After these things I looked, and there was a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice that I heard speaking to me, the one of Jesus, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, so that I can show you what must happen after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and a throne was standing in heaven with someone seated on it. John says, Immediately after this I heard a voice. And the voice said, Get up here. Come on up. He is taken up. Now many people... The, the futurist view would say this is the rapture of the church. At this point, John being taken up symbolic, symbolically represents, not everybody in the futurist view would take this, but many people in the futurist view would say John going up is symbolic of the entire church being raptured up into heaven. The problem with this is this happens all the time in the Bible. Ezekiel was taken up by the Spirit. Paul was taken up by the Spirit. Isaiah was taken up by the Spirit. Micaiah in chapter 2, or um, chapter 22 of 1 Kings was taken up by the Spirit. This language has been used over and over and over and over again throughout the Bible and never represents the rapture of any kind of a people group. Second, this is clearly a vision. There's no historical, um, earthly rooting that is happening here. Images are metaphorical. We just talked about this. This isn't even really what God truly looks like and in true essence for it. He has no body. The idea of being taken to heaven, nowhere does the context even suggest this, even hint at this. It says, John, I, John, was taken up. There's no hint that this is corporate, that this is a, a global event. There's no hint that other people are being added into this. This is strictly a system that has been created and a need to find where the rapture would be in that system. This is very, very, very few scholars take this view that this is the actual rapture um, because there just seems to be nothing here. And we're going to see this language even later on in Revelation where John will say, I'll be taken over here and here. And, and John has no idea how to explain this either. Paul, when he's taken up, says I, I, he has no idea what was going on. I think we talked about this earlier. But there's no words to explain what is happening. Um, are they getting a vision? Is it an out-of-body of experience? Is everything taken up? Is heaven brought into your mind? They have no way to understand this or explain this. So if John has no idea what really happened to him in this transportation, how literal, how metaphorical, how vision, how spirit, how physical it really is, Paul can't explain understand it, Ezekiel can't, it's really hard for us to say this is definitely the rapture, this is definitely what's happening, or it was physical, or it was... The people who experience it can't even describe it and understand and comprehend it. So it's better just to say, John was taken up, he's seeing a vision, that's it. To explain it even deeper is to push ourselves beyond even John's understanding and beyond John's comprehension. And I'd rather err on the side of I don't know than to err on the side of I do and be completely wrong and mislead people. You're also loading way too much into after this. 
there's after this it means they they take this as the end of everything and the end of the world and and, and there's just too much being loaded that after this is used so many times in the bible and just a purely chronological sense now we come to his vision what he actually saw verse 2 immediately i was in the spirit and a throne was standing in heaven with someone seated on it and the one who seated on it was like jasper and carnelian in appearance and a rainbow looking like it was made of emerald encircled the throne. And a circle around the throne was 24 other thrones. Seated on those thrones were 24 elders. They were dressed in white clothing and had golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came out flashes of lightning and roaring and crashes of thunder. Seven flaming torches were all which are the seven spirits of God, were burning in front of the throne. And in front of the throne was something like the sea of glass like crystal. The first thing that John sees is actual Yahweh sitting in the throne. We have had very few images of Yahweh sitting in the throne. But if you want to go back and read this, um, one of the first images of Yahweh sitting in the throne we have is Isaiah chapter 6, where he sees Yahweh on the throne. His train or robe fills all of the earth. All the earth is his temple. There's seraphim, whatever the heck they are, with multiple eyes and wings and fire floating around him, and they're chanting, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. At this, John immediately feels, or Isaiah feels the need to fall down because he feels like he's going to die. He's in the presence of God. The other one is Daniel 7. We've talked about this, where the beasts come up out of the sea, and the one like the Son of Man approaches the throne of God, and we're told that he sits on the throne. He's covered in fire. Fire shoots out of his throne. Ezekiel is probably the most graphic image of chapter 1. We see God sitting on this this um, chariot, the wheels of the chariot are floating and they're a wheel within a wheel, which means they go this way and then also go perpendicular to that, which is physically impossible in this dimension. And they have eyes all around and the angels are standing next to each of them and they move as fast as lightning to move the chariot around. And there's this ice sculpture of a throne going up above it and God sits there on the throne with the top half looking like fire and the bottom half burnished glowing metal like red hot in the fire and a rainbow coming in around his head and lightning shooting out everywhere. And so these are the probably the most graphic images that we have of Yahweh on the throne. Now John adds his understanding of what he's seen. And he describes this as one of Jasper and Carnelian. Jasper was a white stone. Okay, it could be either white or ruby. We're not incredibly clear. Some people say this is a diamond but I don't think so. Diamonds were kind of worthless in the ancient world. If you know anything about um, diamonds, um, they're only valuable because the diamond industry says they are. And we'll talk about this a lot more when we get to the, the stones that make up the 12 foundations of the city in and, and chapter um, 22. And we'll talk about that a lot more, 21. And we'll talk about a lot more what these stones are. So I'm just going to kind of gloss over the stones for now. And we'll, at the very end of the book, we'll really dive into this and the meaning of these stones a lot. But right now what you need to understand is that this is either some kind of a rich, vibrant red or some kind of a white. And we'll talk about why it's not diamonds at the end of the book. Yes, we will get to that later. And the other thing you understand is if this is diamonds, diamonds weren't clear like we think of them. They didn't know how to cut them. They didn't have lasers and machines. So they were more of like a, 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 a um, frosted look. And so they didn't really reflect 
and, uh, and do the light as like they do now. And so it wouldn't really be considered as beautiful as it does now when it kind of hangs in your window and the sun kind of hits it. It wouldn't have that same effect. Could be diamonds, but I don't really think it is. And like I said, we'll talk about that in chapter 21. And basically what this represents is the absolute precious, the, the, the pricelessness of God, the beauty of God. If you've ever gone, I actually haven't gone there. I've seen videos. I know the videos pale in comparison. I've heard people describe it. But if you've ever seen the jewels of the, the Queen of England on display in England, supposedly they're just absolutely phenomenal to see all those jewels and all the light hitting it and the refractions and the reflections and the prisms and everything coming out of it. And that would be nothing in comparison to this all the glory and the light that is coming out of God. But these stones anticipate and are pointing towards the new city that we're going to see at the end of the book where the glory of God is revealed in heaven and creation. It also says that there was an emerald that encircled the throne. Emerald is a a green stone and it's a very beautiful stone that reflects a lot of light and stuff. What What is interesting here is that this word is iris and this word iris when the stone is tilted like vertically or horizontally when it's tilted one way who knows when a stone is actually vertical or horizontal but when it's one way and the light hits it it forms like a prism a light coming out of it but then when you turn it it casts a rainbow out of it and so it becomes circular so if you kind of turn a rainbow and look down it it looks like a line but then when you turn the rainbow it looks like a circle it's called an iris and the greek word for iris literally means rainbow And so the idea is a rainbow that is coming out of God's head, so to speak. This is the exact image that we see in the First Testament of God. So his crown is a giant rainbow. That's what's being portrayed here. And for those who know, rainbows are circular. They only look like an arch after a rain because the earth is interrupting it. But if you've ever seen like... Um, like we can see this on our trampoline, our water sprinkler on a trampoline, and the light can come through, and you can see these little rainbows sometimes on just the right day, and that kind of stuff. So the rainbow is his crown that encircles him. And the, the halo represents divinity, godhood. It has always meant that in the ancient world. But what's interesting is here, we always think of God being as white light. But every time God is described in the Bible, he's described as every color of the rainbow coming out of him. Is every color of the rainbow coming out of him. And so this would just be an absolute kaleidoscope of wonder, of images and colors coming out of him. And John's taken up into a higher dimension, which means he's going to see these colors in a way that you and I with our eyes can't see them right now. But maybe one day we will. This is the rainbow that he sees here. And it basically represents his absolute kingship over all of creation. This is rooted in Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel 1, and Daniel 7. Also see Psalm 48, where we see a picture of Yahweh. Yahweh is described described in all of his ineffable majesty, meaning undescribable, uncomprehensible. How does one describe a God that is beyond all words? The most important thing is that Yahweh is not and cannot be described. An anthropomorphic language of Yahweh would be turned into an idol, and it's important that our image of Yahweh is not too small. I said that before, but I'm going to say it again and again because of the temptation. In the circle around the throne, there were 24 elders and other thrones. And see on these thrones, there were 24 elders. We're going to see three descriptions here. We're going to see 24 elders. 
we're going to see the four living creatures, and we're going to see just a group of angels, messengers, heavenly messengers. Now, what you need to understand is that even though the 24 elders are listed first, it's actually the four living creatures that are the closest to the throne. Because later when we get into the verse, we're going to be told at the center in the throne, the center of the throne, are the four living creatures. These are concentric circles moving outward. So God starts in the middle circle and describes the 24 elders, goes to the center circle, describes the four living creatures, and then goes to the outer circle and describes the angels. And then he's going to move out even further and describe the sea of glass that is surrounding the throne. And so these are the concentric circles. The four living Yahweh in the throne, the four living creatures outwards, outward even more, the four, 24 elders, outwards even more are the angels, and then around that is the sea. And then when we get to chapter, 20, ch- chapter 7, we're going to see the uncountable number of believers around the sea. These are the circles that you're seeing around the throne in heaven. John sees the heavenly court. This is what's called the divine council of Yahweh. And if you don't understand what that means, I'll briefly describe, but I have a much deeper discussion on my website. The divine council of Yahweh is Yahweh has a council of members that are the angelic beings, the seraphim, the cherubim, um, angelic beings. Um, The Bible calls them, the first testament calls them the sons of God. Sons of God is just a way of saying divine beings. And they're in God's council and they, they, they help make decisions with God and they go out and they execute the will of God. And so you need to understand, like, a lot of people are like, wait a minute, God doesn't need help making decisions. And you're right, he doesn't. But he chooses to use the angels and allow them to interact with him because he's a relational God. And in the same way that when God came down to Abraham in chapter 18 and said, should we tell Abraham what we're going to do to Son Gomorrah? After all, he will be a father of many kings and rule the world. Should he not know what justice looks like? And this is where Abraham says, would you destroy the city if there's 50 people? And this scene clearly displays a give and take between God and Abraham. And at any moment, God can override him. Okay? It's like if you ask your kids, like, hey, where do you want to go out to eat? And they're like, I want to go to McDonald's. And you're like, oh, my gosh, no. And you're like, nope, overriding that one. But then they say, like, Olive Garden, and you're like, okay, I'll do that. So you're still absolutely authoritative, and you have the right to override them any time, and you didn't need their help. Like, I can't think of any restaurants. Let's go to my five-year-old kid for ideas, because I'm lost without them, right? You're asking them because you want them to join you. Okay, there was a time when I fix things, I often invite my girls, and when our washing machine down the basement broke, I invited Natasha, who was like six or seven, I don't know, to help me. And she slowed me down, and she made things much harder, but I allowed her to join me because she's mine, and I want her to join me. And God doesn't need you to witness to people. He doesn't need you to spread the gospel, but he chooses to allow you to join him because he wants to do this with you. This is a God who says, this is my creation, and I'm inviting you to join me in the expansion of the garden, to join me in the conquest of Canaan, to join me in blessing the world, to join me in in, in witnessing and sharing the gospel, to join me in the judgment of the world, to join me in making decisions. We see this with Moses. When Moses on Mount Sinai says, will you forgive them for what they did with the golden calf? And God was about ready to destroy them, and God said, okay, I will. Now, that's a whole other conversation. God's not changing his mind there, actually. He's just going back to his character and stuff. But it's an example of this. 
And so God has this divine counsel where he allows people to participate with him. And John is brought up in this divine counsel. Now, the only time you ever see humans on the divine counsel of Yahweh are prophets. And prophets are male and female. We are told that, obviously, we know all the male prophets, but there are female prophetess like Miriam, the sister of Moses in Exodus chapter 14. We see Deborah in Judges chapter 4 and 5, who was a prophetess. And we see Huldah, who was a prophetess in the book of 2 Kings. And we see... Um, in the book of Acts, Philip, the one of the disciples of Jesus, had three daughters who were prophetess. Anna, who prophesies over Jesus, the baby Jesus, was a prophetess. Um, there are prophets. And, and, and what makes you a prophet is you can see the spiritual realm and you're invited onto the divine council of Yahweh. And you are brought into the heavenly realm of God and allowed to make decisions with God. And, and, and then God sends you out, like Isaiah, when God says, Who will go out? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. That is a volunteer thing. That is God inviting you to join him in doing something. This is what we see here with this divine council. Some people say that these 24 elders on the 24 thrones wearing white robes and crowns represent the church. It represents the church. These are the believers. Nowhere in the First Testament have we ever seen humans in heaven. And here we now see humans in heaven, and they're represented. They say this because they're wearing white robes, that we've seen that a lot in the book of Revelation assigned to the seven churches of a victory. They're wearing crowns. We are told that we're going to be a kingdom of priests many times throughout the Bible. They are called elders. Elders are often associated with believers and humans and the churches. And the fact that there's 24. Now, you have to understand, no numbers are really new in Revelation. There's the law of first mention, where the first time it's mentioned, you go back and find how that's used, and then you develop it from that point on. But what's interesting is the number 24 is only used one time in the entire Bible, and that is back in Chronicles. In 1 Chronicles chapter 24, there are so many priests in Israel now, after all these years of being fruitful and multiply, that there's, they, they, they just can't all serve in the tabernacle or the temple. And so tabernacle at time of David, 1 Chronicles chapter 24, and then later the temple. David divides the priests into 24 divisions and to rotate them out. We see this with Zechariah when we get to Jesus, where it's his division's turn to serve in the temple. And by that time, there were so many priests that this was a once-in-a-lifetime thing that you would ever serve in the temple because there's so many of them. And so David divides them into 24 divisions. So 24 at this point has now become associated with priesthood. This is the only time that is ever mentioned. Seven is mentioned a lot. Twelve is mentioned a lot. Other numbers are mentioned three. But 24 only appears there and here. And so a lot of people have said this represents priesthood. And so the, they're wearing crowns, a kingdom of priests. They're, they're, they're priests, the 24. They're wearing white robes. This must be humans in heaven. There's problems with this, though. I don't believe that these are actually humans. This is mostly based on an understanding of Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. A mistranslation, actually, back from the King James days. And it says, Hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. The elders begin to talk, and they sing a song that Jesus, or God, Jesus, sorry, Hast redeemed us by thy blood. Now, this is very important. 
Because angels can't be re-redeemed. The Bible makes it very clear, especially in Hebrews, that God did not die for angels. Angels cannot be redeemed once they are fallen. And, and this is the point that Hebrews is making. The Hebrews is making the point that believers can actually come into such a full knowledge of God, or not believers, let me rephrase that, humans. Humans can come and experience so much of God and have the entire gospel presented to them, fully understand the gospel, know what it is, taste the Holy Spirit and its goodness, and then reject it and turn away. And in that point, it's, it's, they can't be redeemed because they're rejecting the full knowledge of God. In the First Testament, Adam and Eve were redeemable because they rejected God in ignorance. They rejected God not knowing his full presence. And Hebrews is making the point that when Christ comes and the Holy Spirit comes and presents God to you in its fullness, and you reject the 100% of what you know about God and what there is to know about God from humans, you can't be redeemed. There's nothing that can bring you back again because you rejected the entire gospel. And now I don't know what that looks like on a practical level in people's hearts. Hebrews does not explain what that looks like practically in the hearts of people. And it never says that you have the right to determine whether they have rejected the 100% or not. Only God can. But the warning is not for you to look at other people and say, you're unredeemable because you rejected the entire message. The point is to look at your own heart and don't make that mistake. That's the point of Hebrews argument. So the point that he goes on and says the angels stood in the full glory of God's presence. And then the fallen angels, what we call demons, rejected all of that. And therefore, they're unredeemable. They cannot be redeemed back to God. They have rejected God in his fullness. So there's no new revelation for them to accept and be redeemed back to. And I know this is a complicated theology, maybe a weird theology you haven't heard, but this is a very common thing. And so later in the Bible, in Revelation, we're going to see that it says that a new song is sung, that Christ has redeemed the believers, a song that the angels cannot sing. It's not that they can't learn the lyrics. It's that they can't sing it because it means nothing to them. You see, praise and worship of God, or praise specifically, praise of God is not just singing songs and following a tune. Praise is you pouring your heart out before God. And if all it is is words and a beat that excites you, then you're not really praising God. It comes from the heart. It's an emotional connection to Yahweh. And they can't do that. They can't sing a song that they can't experience and they can't feel because they can't be redeemed. So they have no idea what it's like to be redeemed. They have no idea what it's like to praise God for that aspect. Chapter 5, verse 9, they've mistranslated this. But every single translator, translation, every scholar knows now that this is a misunderstanding of the Hebrew, now with the Dead Sea Scrolls and many other documents, that it should be understood that they're singing a song that, that, that they're saying that, there's, that God has now redeemed believers, not themselves. So they're not saying God has redeemed us. They're saying that God has redeemed the believers. And this is made very, very clear when we get to chapter 14, verse 3. And it specifically says that when the believers standing before the throne of God in chapter 14 sing about the redemption of God, the elders could not join them. The elders could not join them. In my opinion, this is a silver bullet argument that this cannot be humans. 
If they can't sing, according to chapter 14, verse 3, and then according to Revelation 5, 9, they're talking about a new song is now being sung by the believers. The believers are being redeemed. Then that means that they cannot be redeemed, which means they're angels. And they don't need to be redeemed because they're not fallen angels. And so demons can't be redeemed because they've rejected everything. And angelic beings can't be redeemed because they haven't rejected God to be redeemed. You can only be redeemed if you've fallen, right? And if they haven't fallen, then they, can't, they don't need to be redeemed. And if they don't need to be redeemed, then they don't know what it's like to be redeemed. Therefore, they can't sing a song about being redeemed because it means nothing to them. Does that kind of make sense? And so the fact that Revelation 5.9 says they are talking about the believers being redeemed, and 14.3 specifically says that they can't sing this song, this cannot be humans. This cannot be humans. Second reason that this cannot be humans is that there are concentric circles. So you have the inner circle, which are angelic sons of God, the living creatures. Then you have the elders out that, and then you have angels on top of that. It does not make sense for God to have put the humans in between the angels. The idea is that this is his heavenly court. And so this doesn't make sense for God to put them right in the middle. Nowhere in the Bible do you see this idea of angels, humans being mixed in the middle of angels. Angels are either before, between God and humans or not there at all. And so the reality is that doesn't make sense with what we've seen all throughout the Bible. The third reason is chapter 7 introduces humans for the first time. When we get to chapter 7, you're going to see humans before the throne of God for the first time ever in the entire Bible. And when you get there, it is unmistakable. It says an uncountable number of people from every tribe, every language, every nation, humans upon humans, all this kind of stuff. And it makes a really big deal about it. It makes a super big deal about it. It spends an entire chapter on it. There are songs about it. There are wondrous things about it. God makes a big deal about it. He is alluding to Micah chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 2, which is about the cosmic mountain and all the nations coming through. It is clear that they are humans. Here it's vague. Why would God vaguely introduce humans here in a non-climactic way and then get really climactic and make a big deal about it in chapter 7? Why not make a big deal about it here? and then talk about it again later. It doesn't make sense to, this is the biggest and the most exciting and the most cosmic and climactic thing that has ever happened in human history, that the gates of heaven have been opened up to humans. And God just says there's 24 hours. The first time ever that you see humans in heaven, and he just says there's 24 hours. And it's vague. He doesn't call them humans. He doesn't celebrate it. But then when you get to chapter 7, he celebrates it and makes a very big deal about it. That's like bringing somebody in for their surprise party, and you're like, hey, we're all here. And then an hour later, you're like, happy birthday! Oh my gosh! Like, you're all just humdrum about it for an hour and make no big deal about it. And they're like, this kind of sucks. This is a horrible super surprise party. And then all of a sudden, you get really excited and energetic, like you just drank a bunch of Red Bulls and it came out of nowhere. And the person's going to be confused. This, this is not how parties work. This doesn't make sense that God would make a big deal about it in chapter 7 and then not in chapter 4 if these are humans. And at the same time, not even really clearly state that these are humans. Leaves it completely vague. Fourth reason that these are not elders. The elders all throughout the book of Revelation are constantly explaining to John the meaning of things. They're telling John this is what this means and this is what that means and this is what's going on. 
Never, ever, ever do humans explain the meaning of cosmic heavenly things. Remember, John is like, it looks like this, and it's kind of like that, and it's da 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 I have no idea what's going on, right? But the angel says, and every time we see humans, like, Daniel's like, I have no idea what I'm seeing, God. And the angel comes down and explains things to him. And Daniel's like, that still doesn't make sense to me. And then we get to Zechariah, and Zechariah actually falls asleep because he's so confused at what's going on. And the angel wakes him up and says, wake up, God's still talking. And Zechariah's like, I don't know what's going on. And the angel explains to him, he's like, I still don't know what's going on. Amos doesn't know what's going on, but God explains it to him, and he actually gets it and understands it because he's a little sharper. Actually, this is what's really kind of insulting. When God comes to Amos, it's like sharp. He gets it all the time. But then he comes to Zechariah hundreds of years later, and he wakes up Zechariah, and Zechariah's like, I don't know what's going on. And God literally says, the prophets before you would have understood it. You're like, oh, gosh. That's like saying your older brother did better in school than you. Like, what the heck, God? So... So every single time you see these angels explaining things, and all throughout the book of Revelation, the angels interpret things. John has no idea what's going on. Humans don't ever understand what they're seeing because they're finite three-dimensional beings looking at an incredibly uncountable dimensional phenomenal event, right? And only angels can understand what they're seeing because only angels live in that beyond the third dimension realm. And yet the elders consistently explain to John what is going on in the meaning of this and the meaning of that and the meaning of that. It would not make sense for some humans to explain to John who walked with Christ and was chosen by God to be on the divine council to be explained to him by other humans. Why not just make the revelation to those humans? All through apocalyptic literature outside of the Bible you see angels always explaining things. So this doesn't make sense. The fifth reason that this can't be humans is even though they said they're wearing white robes Angels wear white robes all throughout the Bible, too. They're constantly wearing white robes. The other reason, they also wear crowns. Sixth reason, the elders offer the prayer of the believers to Yahweh. In apocalyptic literature, this is the function of angels. Angels serve the role of taking the prayers of the believers and bringing them to God. Even post-Christ and post-redemption, angels transfer the prayers from humans to God. They're the ones that orchestrate that. We never see humans carrying the prayers of humans to God. Maybe I can pray for you on your behalf here, but not in a heavenly cosmic sense. Am I ushering your prayers into heaven, into God's presence? Seventh reason this can't be this. Elders doesn't mean they're humans because angels are even called elders. The word elders use of angels, and we see this Isaiah chapter 24, angels are called elders. So there really is nothing here that specifically says without a shadow of a doubt that these are humans. What most likely is this here is that they're a higher class of angels. They're, they're, they're not as high as the four living creatures. Those are always portrayed as closer to God than anybody else. But they're, they're the second highest. Maybe they're not really, but for what we have right here, um, they're a high ranking. Now, why 24? I do believe the 24 goes back to the priesthood. But angels serve as mediators. All a priest is is a mediator between God and humans. The job of a priest is to make God known to another person and to bring a person into the presence of God. Can angels do that? Yes. In fact, all throughout the Bible, we're told that angels mediate us into the presence of God. When Moses goes up on Mount Sinai in chapter 19 and all the way through chapter 32 to receive the law, you get this picture that Moses is all by himself up on the mountain. But when we get to Deuteronomy, Moses says there were myriads of angels 
between me and God because even Moses can't go into the presence of God because he's a sinner. And there were myriads upon myriads between him and God and we're told that they mediated the law. That God gave the law to the angels and the angels gave the law to Moses. So the angels made God known to Moses and the angels brought Moses into the presence of God. That's a priest. And then we're told in Hebrews that that's why the Mosaic law is inferior to the new covenant through Christ because the law was mediated by angels, but the new covenant in Christ was mediated by God's son. And God's son is superior to angels. Angels serve as priests too. So I think this word number 24. Now the other thing that the number 24 is being here is, and this is, this is very common among a lot of scholars, is that 24 is a multiple of 12. And many, many, many scholars believe this represents the 12 disciples of, sorry, the 12 tribes of Israel, the old covenant believers, and the 12 disciples of Christ, the new covenant believers, the heads of the tribe of Israel and the heads of the church. And that they're now being brought together because all throughout the Bible, it's making the point that Israel are both Jews and Gentiles together. And angels are always portrayed as representing humans in heaven. In fact, we see this, right? Right to the angel of the church of this church. And that they are the angel over the seven stars of the seven angels over the seven churches. And that this basically group of angels might be a heavenly divine council that represent the old covenant believers, Israel, the 12 tribes, and the new covenant believers, Gentiles, through the disciples, coming together. And they represent the unity of the old and the new coming together and representing us before God and heaven. And so this might be where the 24 comes from in that sense. I hold this open-handed, admitting that I may be wrong, but I feel very strongly a lot of the evidence points to this, um, of being some kind of class of angels. Now, does that make sense? What is most important, though, in all of this, what is most important is that from the point of view of Revelation 4 is their function. God spends more time on their function than he does on helping you understand who they are. If he really wanted you to understand who they were, we would get a lot more detail, especially with the four living creatures. What in the world are they? In Ezekiel, they have four faces on each side of their head and all that kind of stuff. And one's an ox, one's an eagle, one's a human, and one's a lion. Don't you think that that would be, if God really wanted you to understand what this really is? I mean, my goodness, National Geographic spends hours just talking about a bunny rabbit. Don't you think we get a little bit more than one sentence on these cosmic four living creatures that have these weird heads and faces? So that means that this isn't the point to understand what they are. The point is understanding what they do. That's where God spends the most time on. And the law of proportion says whatever you spend the most time on is the most important thing. And their function was to praise God and to proclaim, the, to surrender their authority, their crowns that they had to God and to praise him for who he is as creator and then later Jesus as redeemer. Their full sole purpose of is to point you towards God as creator, sovereign creator, king, and to point you towards Jesus as the Redeemer. 
That's their function. That's every time you see them keep popping up in Revelation, they're pointing you towards Yahweh on the throne as sovereign creator and Jesus on the throne as redeemer. That's their primary, that's the most important thing from this. And so you can say they're humans, you can say they're angels, but the goal was to point towards the throne, to the throne, to the throne. 